0: Bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday, with your host, Michael Novogratic. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratic, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. This is a September 27th, 2022 podcast. A few weeks ago on Twitter, I asked my followers, what topics would you like us to address on Tax Credit Tuesday? As regards to low-income tax credit, The topic that received the most votes was year 15 issues. My followers have voted. So today we will discuss year 15. There's a wide range of theoretical possibilities for the future of a law revising tax credit property and its owner partners when year 15 is reached. I say theoretical possibilities because many paths are just that. Theoretical as many factors go into identifying which paths or future possibilities are truly available. Before we get started though, let me share with you some important information about, impo- about upcoming Tax Credit Tuesday episodes. We are entering an exciting month or two in the community development tax incentive world. I say that because three very important events have recently or are expected shortly to occur. Recently, there was a critical housing data release. And in the coming weeks, there should be a major national tax credit awards announcement and a vitally important income tax regulation is likely to be finalized. We at Novogratik are preparing behind the scenes, or maybe I should say behind the microphone to present a Task Credit Tuesday episode for each. Regarding the release of critically important housing data. The American Community Survey or ACS data for 2021 was recently released. ACS data is used to determine income and rent levels for long-term tax credit and bond finance properties. (laughs) On the major financial awards front, we expect the Community Development Financial Institutions Fund to announce the recipients of $5 billion in new markets tax credit allocation issuance authority awards before the ides of March. On the Treasury regulations front, Treasury has submitted to the Office of Management and Budget, OMB, for their review, the average income regulations for low-income housing for properties. This submission to OMB means the regulations are essentially ready for release pending comments from the OMB. Stakeholders have been waiting for these final regulations for a couple of years now. But today's about year 15. So let's get back to today's topic. As many involved in developing, operating and managing loan-combusing testcular properties already know, year 15 is a critical milestone. Year 15 is the end of the initial compliance period for loan tax testcular properties, and it's often the time that the managing general partner and the investor-limited partner evaluate ending their partnership. Now, of course, there could be managing member and non-managing members. Of a LLC that's treated as a partnership, the end of year fifteen, or perhaps more specifically, the beginning of year sixteen, is a critical date, because at that point, the previously claimed and allocated tax credits, which generally span ten years, with a spillover amount in year eleven, are no longer subject to recapture for operational activities after the end of year fifteen. Investors in Developers evaluate ending their partnership at the end of year 15 for a variety of reasons. The investor initially pensively motivated to become a partner to receive tax credits and tax losses will have received all or substantially all of the tax benefits and will often desire to exit the partnership to avoid ongoing compliance costs. Investors may also believe there is significant residual cash value in their interest and they may want to monetize that value. Developers, similarly, may seek to end the partnership at the end of year 15. Developer motivations can be a bit more varied. The property may have renovation or upgrade needs. Long-term debt used to acquire, build, and renovate the property may need to be refinanced. And similar to the limited partner, the general partner may also be seeking to reduce annual compliance costs, as well as monetize any residual value. Now to address the arrival of year 15, the first step to take as with most things in life is to gather the necessary information. The second step is to review the rights and desires of the partners at year 15. And the third step is for the partners to negotiate how they want the partnership to proceed. This is the step that can present many challenges which we will discuss as well as some of the ways partners have becoming these challenges. Today to discuss year 15, we're joined by my tax audit and consulting partner, Kevin Wilson. Kevin is a partner at Novogradics Walnut Creek, California office. He works in a variety of areas, but has special expertise in affordable rental housing, where his clients include affordable housing developers, syndicators, nonprofits, and other stakeholders. Kevin is an expert on year 15 issues and can provide insight on the different issues that come into play for a variety of players in the affordable housing space for additional year 15 resources available at Novogratik beyond today's podcast, we have an entire handbook on the topic that's available through our website in both print and digital form for live training. We are holding a pre-conference workshop on understanding local housing tax transactions at year 15 later this week at our affordable housing tax credits and bond conference in Nashville. There's still time to register, so please check it out. For on-demand training, Novogadic offers a two-hour year 15 on-demand webinar on our website. The Novogadic YouTube channel also includes video excerpts from webinars on year 15, including one on negative capital accounts, positive capital accounts, and another on resyndication, soft debt, seller notes, and modest rehabilitations. Now on the website, we do have a dedicated year 15 section. And of course we have a prior podcast with my partner, Nicolo Pinoli, which is now about a year old. Then I also remind you that we have a year 15 exit professional services team that can also assist you in evaluating your options. We'll post links to all these resources in our show notes. There's a lot involved in year 15 matters and a lot of options. So if you're ready, let's get started. Kevin, welcome to Tax credit Tuesday. Great. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, thanks for having me on the podcast. Now, before we get started on the various steps of addressing year 15, I figured I'd start with a timing question. When do you think a tax credit general partner, limited partner should begin to address year 15. Presumably they should wait until after the end of year 15.
1: Right, right. Yeah. Well, ideally we'd like to think about these issues on day one, right? Before your partnership agreement is executed. So if you think about it during the pre-development and underwriting phase, a lot of analysis and attention is geared towards Developing and refining pro formas and negotiating deal terms with either prospective investors, if you're a developer or prospective developers, if you're an investor in particular with affordable housing tax credit transactions, those pro formas, among other things show a thoughtful analysis of the impact of the expected future operations and the flow of tax credits over the next 15 years to help provide those prospective partners with comfort that the partnership will serve its intended purpose, right? So it's important to realize that at this time, once these negotiations have been completed and the partnership agreement has been executed, the contractual and economic arrangements that are agreed to may have a significant impact 15 years from now. So. Whether you're the development sponsor or the investor, this is the time to speak up and make sure that these terms are agreeable. There may be a variety of options that can be used to analyze and consider the rights and responsibilities and give thoughtful consideration of what might happen 15 years from now and how that might impact the partners. So again, I mentioned those pro formas I've found. That it can be quite helpful both in year one and then again, further on down the road in year 15 to help clarify the understanding among the partners. And while this isn't always done in these pro formas, I generally recommend that those pro formas that are developed during this underwriting phase should be built out to show the impact of the likely year 15 scenarios that are anticipated by the partners. Ideally, even with an upside. And a downside scenario to demonstrate a sensitivity analysis and also to provide examples that might help clarify interpretive questions that may arise regarding the language of certain key provisions of that partnership agreement further on down the road.
0: So it sounds like you're saying you should begin with the end in mind, (laughs) (laughs) even if the end is 15 years away. Right. And then in terms of your clients, once they either have or haven't addressed it, I mean, clearly they've always, they've all addressed year 15 when they signed the partnership agreement. Just a question is how conscious, because the partnership agreement lays out key factors. But for your clients that are in the midst of operating a property as they get closer to year 15, at what point in time do they start reaching out to you? Or do you recommend they start reaching out to you to start more seriously considering what the next steps are as the end of year 15
1: approaches. I mean, it's always in my mind. So anytime we're having conversations, whether informal conversations, just as we're going through our routine annualized work, we'll kind of just discuss these issues just to promote awareness. And we may see things start to emerge as we see numbers, maybe start to diverge from what was originally anticipated uh, and we'll discuss how that might change things.
0: Got it. So in today's introduction to the podcast, I did give a high level explanation as to the significance of the year 15 milestone for long-term taxable properties. But before we address some of the options for the partners and the property uh, at the end of year 15, I thought it was important that we start by discussing some of the key factors that affect which courses of actions are not just theoretically, but are practically available. Could you outline for our listeners, what you've identified as some of the key areas where in which you should be
1: reviewing and assessing key factors? Sure. Sure. Right. So each property is unique and each partnership is unique. So as such, the likely courses of action can vary quite a bit based on a number of facts and circumstances. So typically from the outset. When the development sponsor and the equity investor form a partnership it's known as you mentioned that year 15 is a critical milestone year 15 might provide some great opportunities to assess and address a, a number of factors for instance and we'll discuss these factors in more detail in a couple of minutes but I, I think we should sort of start the analysis by assessing four major areas the first Being the goals of the partners, right? How does each partner view their future role in connection with the property? The second being the needs and the desires of the tenants and what can be done now for their benefit. And then we'll also want to get a good understanding of the physical and financial condition of the property. And then last but not least, we'll want to make sure that we're aware of the relevant contractual rights and obligations of the various parties. So in addition to the expiration of the, the statutory year 15 tax credit compliance period, there may be other contractual provisions contained in loan agreements or regulatory agreements beyond the partnership agreement that might impact this, uh, this decision-making process. So we'll discuss each of these in more detail in a minute, but in general, I think once you have an understanding of these factors, I think you'll find that you're in a much better position to informatively assess the range of options that might be available in year 15. And once you have a firm grasp of those options, it's important to also plan and prepare for the common challenges and issues that those options may present. So we'll also discuss some common challenges that might be encountered as well as some potential resolutions to those issues.
0: So that was a great overview of the key areas and I like the way that you put it into four sort of major categories. So let's drill a bit deeper in each of the four and we'll start as you did with the number one being the goals of the partners, but obviously they're all four interactive. So either in many ways, I would put tenant needs and desires first, but there's other approaches to looking at this. But at the end of the day, you're going to do all, you're going to focus on all four of these. Uh Uh, But let's start with the goals of the partners. Please share with our listeners the range of goals that your clients share with you. And when they plan for year 15, both goals of the general
1: partner slash developer, as well as the investors. Sure. Yeah. So so at a high level, and again, get into more detail on these in a second here, but just to give you some examples and some of the common goals that we see partners pursue, well, for one, the partnership can choose to maintain status quo, right? They can continue to remain as partners and operate the rent-restricted property as they have been. There's nothing in the tax credit rules that forces you to do something here if you're not ready. But like you mentioned, there are reasons to do uh, compel partners to take action here, even though they're not required. Oftentimes one partner may want to stick with the property and buy out the other partner and the remaining partner can continue to own and operate the partner, the property as rent restricted housing. Or there's also the possibility of a re-syndication. This is a really interesting possibility for a number of reasons, this involves Obtaining a new allocation of tax credits and the equity financing derived from these new credits can finance a major renovation to the property. Now, timing, physical condition of the property are really key factors here uh, that we'll discuss in a moment. But with respect to timing, you want to be thoughtful because this occasion is kind of a a major transaction. So you want to be thoughtful about when you pursue that with respect to when your property might benefit the most from that, that additional influx in those renovations. Maybe it's year 15, but maybe it's a few years down the road. Also, maybe both partners choose to either sell the property or their partnership interest to a qualified nonprofit, or they can sell the pro- sell the property or their partnership interest for fair value based on those restricted rents. And then there's also the possibility of a qualified contract and we'll kind of touch on each of those in a few minutes in more detail here. Well,
0: thanks for that uh, overview in terms of the goals and desires of the various partners with respect to the property. And as you kind of gave, went through some of the possible sort of goals and desires of the partners, we'll talk in a bit about what are some of the financial conditions of the property that affect those goals and desires. But let's also pay attention to the tenant needs and desires. The whole purpose of the Logosley Cash Credit Incentive is to provide rental housing that's affordable to lower income tenants. So the needs of the tenants and desires really is paramount when you're looking at year 15. Maybe you could discuss some of the key factors with respect to tenant needs and desires that should be considered as a partnership is evaluating. Next steps at the end of year 15.
1: So, as an owner, you'll generally be focused on providing the highest quality housing for the residents. And most investors and developers in this space are experts doing just that. Now, keep in mind that the tax credit ensures that the rents are controlled within the affordable rent limits for at least another 15 years beyond this first 15 year tax credit compliance period. Usually much longer, depending on, on which state you're in. So any financing opportunities that are explored at year 15 should consider how they can best position the property for long-term success by improving the quality of the property and the standard of living at the property. So for instance, there may be some additional services or amenities that you might consider adding to the property based on the characteristics of the residents that you've learned about over the past 15 years. In some instances that maybe there were aspirations back when you initially did the deal 15 years ago to include some additional resident services, but maybe the budget at that time didn't have enough funding to cover those costs. So now might be a time to revisit whether or not these potential new funding opportunities can cover the cost of those additional resident services. You'll also want to consider the market that you're in and how the property should be positioned to remain an attractive option for tenants when compared to the competition, right? Which could include newer properties that have been added to the market recently. Or properties that are under development and will be added to the market in the not too distant future. So there's a lot to consider there. So thank you for that.
0: And as we mentioned earlier, these four kind of major areas do interrelate. And the next area I wanted you to focus on that interrelates with tenant needs and desires has to do with the physical condition of the property. As we're looking at various options to proceed after the end of year 15, the physical condition of the property is very important in terms of looking at what should be done with the property
1: uh, at that point. And maybe you could touch upon that. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, regarding the physical condition of the property, let's see. first keep in mind that at its core, property property's here for the residents. And it's important to keep in mind that everything starts and ends with the residents, but Also keep in mind that we're talking about an an apartment complex that's at least 15 years old, right? It'll be about 15 years old if it was newly constructed with tax credit financing 15 years ago. Perhaps much older if it was an existing building that was renovated with the tax credit financing 15 years ago. So it's important to consider the physical needs of the property. Now, typically, when these affordable housing Tax credit properties are underwritten, fairly cautious underwriting guidelines are followed as a variety of the stakeholders, ranging from developers, investors, lenders, as well as state allocating agencies, all have a vested interest in the long term success of the development. But over 15 years, stuff happens. So there might be some deferred maintenance that you want to address. Or some other improvements that you can address. So, thank you
0: for that. And you do see a wide range of conditions of properties at the end of year 15. As you noted, there can be some amount of maintenance, deferred maintenance that is needed. You could be at the other end of the spectrum where you've had strong cash flow, strong ability to maintain the property and significant reserves, operating reserves such that there isn't a significant capital needs requirement for property then. So it's definitely a case-by-case basis, as you know. So the other significant element I always think about the property level goes beyond the physical condition of the property and is the financial condition of the property. And assessing the financial condition of property is certainly not as easy as looking at an income statement or balance sheet. There are a lot of factors. So maybe you can explain to our listeners some of the factors to consider in evaluating the financial condition of a local task for a property as you approach the end of year 15.
1: So this dovetails quite a bit with the physical condition of the property. But when <laughs> we're talking about the financial condition of the property, again, going back to day one. As part of the financial feasibility analysis during that underwriting and credit allocation process, the the allocating agencies are going to kind of limit the credits based on an anticipated debt service coverage ratio of 1.15 to 1.25, which is typically fine, but unanticipated situations may have occurred during the past 15 years with respect to any individual property that have added financial stress to the property. So as such care should be given during this planning process to budget what you're anticipating for the needs and reserves and resources to make sure that the property remains in great condition and that the operating revenues will perpetually be sufficient to cover the operating expenses, debt service requirements, as well as any other capital expenditures that will be needed over the long haul. There may be some great opportunities here to enhance the operational profile of the property. And as as we'll discuss in a few minutes, oftentimes year 15 might be an ideal time to explore a number of financing opportunities that can be leveraged to preserve and enhance both the physical and financial condition of the property. And the benefits of these enhancements, which could include addressing those deferred maintenance needs, or maybe adding energy efficiency, energy efficiency upgrades, or just generalized improvements and which should serve going forward to reduce your operating expenses and minimize future maintenance costs, and these enhancements can also significantly reduce residents, monthly utility bills too. So on the whole. These efforts should serve to make the property more desirable and improve the standard of living among other things. Also when assessing the financial condition of the property, we should know about the key terms and provisions of the outstanding debt, right? So for instance, are there any loan maturity dates on the horizon? Or if you're planning to do a refinancing? You want to make sure you understand the yield maintenance adjusters or the prepayment penalty provisions in those loan agreements, which can be significant. Uh, you'll also want to think about what your interest rates are compared to the, the interest rate on your existing debt compared to the current market rates out there, which as we've seen recently can change quite quickly. Um, yes, <laughs> yeah. And then another thing we see is if you have a half contract, right? Which is great. Consider the terms and the remaining life of that half contract and the likelihood of renewals. Uh, if there's uncertainty. This, I, I
0: don't want to interrupt, but maybe explain to our listeners what a half contract is.
1: Oh, Wait. sure. Yeah. So a housing assistance payment contract, right? So a contract that you have with either the local housing authority with HUD that provides for rent assistance for tenants. And that may be for a finite period of time, right? So oftentimes you can kind of count on being able to renew that every few or so years when those renewals come up, but oftentimes, depending on the current market environment, there may be some uncertainty as to whether or not those renewals will continue to be available for the foreseeable future. So you want to give some consideration as to how the property might transition to the loss. Of this significant funding source and aside from that year 15 properties will typically by year 15 have a pretty well established pattern of financial performance and operating results typically the property has either consistently generated positive cash flows or the property has struggled to break even or i mean this isn't ideal but there are situations where the property just routinely is incurring deficits, right? They just can't seem to break even. So depending on which one of these profiles fits your property, it may have a significant impact on the options that are available. The other major factor to consider is just the partnership's net asset value. So does the share value of your assets exceed the outstanding debt? And then again, that's going to impact future options for both partners. So thank you for that, Kevin. That's a great overview.
0: So we've discussed so far the general goals of the partners. When we're thinking about year 15, we've talked about the importance and the significance and the foundational significance, if you will, of the needs and desires of tenants. And we've discussed the importance of assessing the physical and financial condition of the property. There is one other major area you mentioned earlier that a partner in a law office of a partnership should consider as they're approaching year 15. And that's the rights of the various partners. So maybe you could share with our listeners, some of the typical rights that a managing general partner will have, as well as a investor limited partner would have, and how these rights
1: affect the range of year 15 outcomes so within the context of a partnership really obviously careful consideration must be given to your partnership agreement so just because you and keep in mind just because you dealt with an issue in a previous partnership that doesn't mean that you'll have to deal with that same issue in every partnership because each agreement is different it's interesting sometimes to see just how different these agreements can be also when you're reading your partnership Don't just look at the original partnership, but consider any amendments that have been made over the past 15 years. There may have been an amendment at some point in time that can significantly impact the rights, responsibilities, and options that are available. Now, when it comes to the year 15 analysis, really, I think the first section that I think about and that I look at is the section that discusses how the partners have agreed to share. And any, any cash that's generated by the partnership, right? So we always refer to this as the waterfall. Now, typically in an affordable housing tax credit partnership, the partnership agreements typically contain two waterfalls. One documents how the partners have agreed to share in any cash that's generated from the operations of the apartment complex on an annual basis And the second waterfall. It explains how the partners have agreed to share in any cash that's generated from either a sale of partnership assets or a refinancing. And I'll note that these two waterfalls can be quite different. In the context of year 15, it's generally going to be that second waterfall that covers sales and refis that we'll want to focus on here. However, we'll also want to understand what the partner's tax capital accounts are. Right? So just to provide some background as to why the, the tax capital accounts are so important in general, partnership tax law provides partners with tremendous flexibility with respect to how income deductions, gains, losses, and of course, tax credits are allocated among those partners. And these types of partnerships frequently utilize a variety of special allocations of certain items as negotiated by the partners and described in That partnership agreement. But keep in mind, these investors are invested based on a high degree of certainty that all of these allocations will be respected so that they can comfortably comfortably rely on their ability to receive those allocations. Now, the overriding guardrail here is as governed by the tax code and the treasury regulations there under, is that partners have flexibility to agree to allocations among the partners as they see fit, so long as those allocations have substantial economic effect. So what's substantial economic effect? That can be kind of a tricky question, but fortunately, the treasury regulations are quite helpful in that they provide a number of examples and definitions. But in addition to that, to further simplify the analysis of whether or not Partnership allocations have substantial economic effect. The regulations provide a safe harbor so that as long as your partnership follows the guidelines of the safe harbor, then any allocations will be respected as having substantial economic effect. I'll note that most, or if not all, of the partnership agreements that govern affordable housing partnerships that I've seen reside within this safe harbor, which requires that. Upon liquidation, all distributions must be paid to the partners in accordance with their, their capital account balances. So that's why I'm kind of mentioning those as an important consideration here. You'll also want to read the section of your partnership agreement that defines the rights and responsibilities of the partners beyond the waterfall that we just discussed in particular with respect to year 15, it's not uncommon for some of these partnerships especially, I think this tends to be in some of the older partnership agreements to starting at year 15, shift certain powers to the limited partner. in particular, I'm referring to a provision that would give these limited partners, the right to compel the partnership, to sell the property. Now this can be a very powerful, right. that could essentially kick in overnight, right at year 15 or right after year 15. If that right is in that partnership agreement. So in addition to being a potentially powerful economic right, I always like to point out that for financial reporting purposes under GAAP, the existence of this right may also impact the determination of which partner consolidates the partnership under the consolidated financial accounting standards, which. I think it's fair to say it can be quite complex. It's also critical to be aware that, regardless of whether or not one partner is given the power to decide whether or not to liquidate the partnership, there may be contractual provisions that could significantly limit the value of the property to the partnership. For instance, there may be purchase options or puts, or that are held by the partners. Or, in particular, I'm thinking of the rights of first refusal held by either the partners or third parties. And oftentimes these rights of first refusal can provide a right to purchase the property at a price that's less than the fair value. In particular, with respect to these rights of first refusal, they'll provide a right typically to a qualified nonprofit to purchase the property for a specified price for a specified period of time. Sometimes a price is equal to fair value, but it might also instead be equal to the outstanding debt. Plus any tax liability incurred on the sale. This debt plus taxes price may be significantly less than the fair value. So when we say debt plus taxes, really what we're referring to here is that, is that right can the party with that, right. Can acquire the property for a price equal to the partnership's outstanding debt plus any tax liabilities realized by the partners on the sale as the partners may incur some taxable income as a result of that sale, particularly if they have a large negative capital account balance. And sometimes, ideally, these rights are documented in the partnership agreement, but there are situations where these, this right of first refusal could be documented in other contracts, such as the Tax Credit Regulatory Agreement. So I'll reiterate that not all of these right of first refusal prices call for this below market price. Oftentimes that purchase price to exercise this right is equal to the greater of fair value or this, that statutorily derived minimum price of debt plus taxes. Also the timing of these rights, the timing of when these rights can be exercised and when they expire can vary. So. It's really important to carefully read the underlying agreements that govern these situations.
0: So, maybe, Kevin, you could also touch upon when you're reviewing the various agreements the significance of various consent rights, that being consent rights of maybe a limited partner or other parties, other stakeholders, lenders, credit allocation agencies, if there's a master lease in place, as well as the significance of
1: capital account status. Right. Well, I think when I think about consent rights, well, one of the big ones that I think about is I mentioned that in some situations, a partnership leader might give one partner the right to determine when the partnership can sell, the partner, which is, which is not a consent, right? It's just a right that's given. Whereas on the flip side of that, if we start getting into situations where we look at a refinancing or something like that, one partner may have the authority to execute that refinancing. But they can't do it without the consent of the other partners in the partnership. So so there might be a consent around refinancings or other major capital events.
0: Thank you, Kevin, for discussing the consent rights that limited partner investors may often have that limit what a general partner can do on their own without getting the limited partner to consent. And you notice know, refinancing the property, oftentimes it could be. LP consent rights there, there could be LP consent rights to market a property for sale as well as actually sell the property. But there are other parties that can have consent rights. So maybe you could touch upon some of the other parties at a high level that could have consent rights that the partners or a partnership need to consider before they move forward down one of these executions.
1: So obviously the lenders are a big player here and the loan agreements that you have in place may have certain terms and conditions that impact the possibilities here. Also be aware of conditions in place with your tax credit state allocating agency, right? As there may be consent rights for them to uh, approve any transfers of ownership of the property. And then while this isn't quite as common, there are situations where the property or a portion of the property, such as the land that the apartment complex is on is subject to a lease agreement, right? So you may have a contract with a lessor that may have other consent rights or the like, something like that. Yeah, thank you for that. I think
0: the big takeaway here is beyond looking at the agreements among the partners, both in the partnership agreement and beyond the partnership agreement and other written agreements. And I really like the bet that you said with respect to the partners. Don't forget amendments. <laughs> yeah, now the other thing we've talked about a lot, and we see this a lot in our audit is make sure you're reviewing the executed partnership agreement. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing how often you'll get an initial draft of a partnership agreement from a client and it isn't the executed version. Right. And you want to be looking at the executed version to ensure after that it changes since from the draft that was almost final, but not quite final, because there could have been some notable changes in this version that was actually executed.
1: Oh yeah. now I see people like to use the word doc because it's easier to search and. Right. But that's not executed. (laughs) No, that is
0: correct. And PDFs now you can do, deal with search pretty easily. So newer I, ones. Yeah. Yes. I mean, you can always scan and do your OCR. But anyways, let's get beyond that minutia and let's now take a deeper look at the options or paths at year 15. So maybe share with our listeners, some of the broad categories of paths or options for properties and partners at the end of year 15.
1: Yeah, so quite often these these year 15 discussions will center around a reorganization of the partnership whereby one partner, typically the developer, spawn buys out the investor. And the sponsor continues to own and operate the property that they've come to know inside and out over the past 15 years, while the investor exits the partnership and sails off into the sunset. And we'll get into the mechanics of kind of how that can be done in a second. But before we get into that, I'll reiterate that they don't have to split up just because it's year 15. So in some situations, both partners may decide that remaining together beyond year 15 is mutually beneficial. But then one of the reasons why this reorganization an investor exit scenario is so common is that, like we mentioned earlier, one of the key components of the investor's anticipated return was the tax credits and then also the tax losses. And now all of those tax credits have been fully realized and the losses are likely starting to diminish. So that investor may be ready to exit the partnership and realize whatever value their partnership interest is now worth if any and then there's also the possibility that both partners are ready to move on and the partnership can sell the property to a new owner subject to all of those affordability restrictions and continuing compliance and both partners then sail off into the sunset now in situations where either one or both partners is exiting the partnership. Oftentimes, one of of the most attractive options is a re-syndication, right? So we'll get this fresh batch of tax credit and the property can use those, the equity proceeds generated by those tax credits to finance that major renovation that we touched on earlier. So another key thing here is this is going to preserve and extend those affordability requirements for a, a longer period of time now under this scenario the partnership that owns a property now would sell the property to a new partnership so in this situation in order to generate the maximum amount of credits there is a 50 percent related party threshold so whereby you know the common ownership of the buying partnership and the selling partnership cannot be greater than 50 percent now it's important here When you're looking at this 50% threshold, the partners have to look beyond just the routine profit and loss allocation provisions and consider other provisions or special allocations, such as the waterfalls, which may call for an interest of greater than 50% to partners who are on the lower end of that percentage with, with respect to profits and losses. So oftentimes this is going to be viewed as the best option which then kind of begs the question, why isn't everyone doing it or why isn't it being done more often? So earlier we touched on just the timing and when the property might need such a significant influx of capital and renovation. But another constraining issue here is just the limited availability of either the tax credits or the private activity bond funding. So many states are at capacity for both of these programs. So obtaining these resources can be quite competitive. And as I'm sure all all of our regular listeners are acutely aware, there are a number of proposed legislative measures that could significantly enhance this situation. Now there's also, we mentioned this earlier, there's also the possibility of the qualified contract process. (laughs) So. This can be a fairly controversial topic, and there is pending legislation that would modify this process as well. Nowadays, many, if not most states, require applicants to waive their right to the qualified contract process when they apply for credits. However, in some situations, the rights contained within the partnership agreement may provide one of the partners with the right to compel the partnership to go through this process. Which, just a brief summary here, is a process by which the partnership can list the property for sale at a statutorily determined qualified contract price, which is not indicative of the fair value of the property. Rather, it's based on a formula in the statute that essentially adds the outstanding indebtedness and the adjusted investor equity contributions and a few other components to determine that qualified contract price. Now, then if they go through this process, they would then list the property for sale at that statutorily determined price for a year. And if no buyer is found, then the partnership can terminate the extended low income use requirements. So those are, I think the, the, the some of the key uh, options that we see here.
0: So thank you for that, Kevin. And then there's also the low market or market rate rights, first refusal and options that have to be considered. And when I say options, I mean, market rate options or below market, or market rate, rights, or first refusal. You can't have below market options. And I always like to think about the end of year 15 as being sort of two major decisions. One is whether the partners are going to stay together or not. And then secondly, what to do with the property itself and the property itself, you can continue to hold it. You can hold it and not refinance or refinance. You might have to do some type of resyndication, or if you don't continue to hold the property, then obviously it means you're going to sell the property. And it could be an unrelated party or a related party, and then that's at the property level, the various things that you can, the partnership can do with the property and then the partners themselves you have to, just have to decide, are we going to stay together and engage in one of these activities together, or are we going to part ways? So it's definitely a challenging a set of options to evaluate. And I think what you said at the very beginning of the podcast, you talked about when you're initially setting up the partnership, running forecasts to consider the various options so that you're evaluating what the possible situations will be in year 15. Obviously you don't know which they're going to be, it's 15 years away at that point, but then as you approach the end of year 15, it can be pretty important to run financial models, analyzing these various outcomes so that there is a better understanding among the partners as to the consequences of the various choices to help inform decision-making. And I know you end up doing a lot of work with clients running these models, right? Put you into year 15 to help them weigh the options. And I would just note to our listeners included in that is an assessment of the capital accounts, what the debt plus taxes cost could be, and a host of other numerical factors. So, Kevin, the. Uh... The fact that we've once again devoted an entire podcast to discussing year 15 options is driven by the fact that there is such a wide range of possibilities at year 15. And you've given us a good summary of some of the various paths. And we know ultimately those paths are determined by the partners in the partnership. So what are some of the key items that you see arising as partners do work to come to agreement as to how to proceed?
1: Yeah. Right. So in situations where the partners are uh, kind of mutually agreed to to part ways, for instance, and this can be either the GP buying out the LP or vice versa, the big question is uh, how do we do it and how much is it going to cost, right? So the partners will need to work through a host of issues here. (laughs) Typically uh, the starting point in determining potential buyout price one partner's buying out the other partner is. The starting point is going to be the fair value of the property. So when negotiating this buyout price among the partners, it's not uncommon for two partners to have different views on the property value. So in some situations, ideally it's great if the partnership agreement can provide a pathway for the partners to follow to resolve the sort of discrepancy there. But then again, if there are situations. Where that's not the case, the partners will need to work together to kind of resolve that, that difference. Also, when we consider the fair value of the property, got to be mindful of those rights of first refusal too, if they exist, which may provide that buyer with the opportunity to buy it for debt plus taxes. And then once, so once the partners have kind of come to terms and agree on what the value of the property is to the partnership, the next step. Is to determine how that value gets allocated among the partners. So here we're going to start again, by looking at those waterfall provisions that are in the partnership agreement, ideally the amount that would be owed to the exiting partner under this kind of hypothetical liquidation scenario that we're talking about, would kind of represent a starting point for the exit price negotiations with a variety of possible adjustments, Uh, but. There and there are other issues to consider as well. For instance, we previously mentioned the that safe harbor that requires that liquidating distributions get paid out in accordance with the partner's tax capital account balances. So if there's a, if there's a significant difference between the amount that would be distributed to the partners based on that waterfall calculation when compared to the distributions based on the partners capital account balances. The partners may need to work together to address this discrepancy. So then how would this buyout be facilitated, right? Much of what we kind of just walked through centered around a hypothetical sale of the partnership's assets. But as we mentioned, the goal here is for one of the partners not to sell the property, rather the goal is for one of the partners to remain in control of the property and buy out the partnership, the third limited partner. So how is this facilitated? I'd say from what I've seen, the most common path forward here is that refinance option. So if the partnership has a positive net asset value, the value of those partnerships assets, so the value of those partnerships assets now exceeds the value of the outstanding debt. So the partnership can obtain a new loan, collateralized. By the appreciated value of the property and pay off the old loan which has been paid down over the past fifteen years, and then set aside a portion of the proceeds there to finance whatever capital needs and renovations the partners decide to set aside where the lender requires to set aside and then use the remaining proceeds or a portion thereof as negotiated among the partners to pay the exiting partner for the fair value of their partnership interest. So in addition to this debate surrounding the fair value of the property and in situations where the, and in addition to the situations where the distributions called for in the waterfall are out of sync with the partner's capital account balances, there may be a number of other issues that may need to be addressed. I say it may need to be addressed now because some of these issues relate to language and provisions of the partnership agreement. So as we noted earlier, no two partnership agreements are alike. And I think one issue that we've seen that oftentimes creates confusion is just challenges regarding the interpretation of the language in the partnership agreement, right? In particular, that waterfall section in some instances, just despite best of intentions. The drafting of this critical section of the partnership agreement can result in interpretive questions where just a simple plain English reading of that provision can be interpreted in two completely different ways. So in some situations, those varying interpretations can have an economic impact on the partners. So it can take time to resolve those issues and those differences. So, getting comfortable with that language is important. This is one of the reasons why I heard earlier in the podcast I recommended building out those performance on day one to show possible year fifteen recapitalization scenarios and to further illustrate the intended mechanics of this partnership agreement. See another issue to be aware of, like you mentioned, is. Most of our discussions here have centered around situations where the partnership has a positive net asset value. But oftentimes, especially if you have layers of soft debt, where you haven't been required to pay off interest over times, over time, there is no net asset value because that outstanding debt balance now exceeds the fair value of the property. And in this situation. An exiting partner's exit price would typically be a nominal sum, uh, unless the partnership agreement calls for a payment to the partners equal to their exit taxes, right? Which would potentially arise if the exiting partner has a negative capital account balance, because again, the mechanics here is they have a negative capital account balance. When they exit the partnership agreement, when they exit the partnership, they would actually recognize taxable income as they write that negative capital account balance back up to zero. And again, sometimes that requirement to make that payment is in the partnership agreement, sometimes it's not. And then sometimes when that requirement is in the partnership agreement, there may be questions or differing views as to how that amount should be calculated, especially if the partnership agreement is not particularly specific on that issue also kind of under this type of scenario where there is no net asset value if the investor exits for some nominal sum they may still have a large positive capital account balance and so in this situation it's important to remember that they may be able to realize the tax benefit from the taxable loss that would be realized when they write off that investment so kevin thank you for that
0: summary of so many different issues in terms of identifying the relative value of the asset, as well as how that relative value is shared among the partners, and also what the consequences are of various paths. And would you agree that when you see year 15 negotiations going on, as a general matter, there's a number of different forecast runs, if you will, as to the rights of various partners to cash, depending upon which of these approaches occurs. And then the partners themselves end up looking at these different possible options and then negotiate among themselves to settle up as to one of the paths which isn't in it doesn't end up being any one of the runs that are done, but the runs helping form the two partners with respect to the variety of options. And then with both partners sort of being aware of the variety of options, they're able to come to a negotiated settlement as to what the path will be. Yep. So thank you for these explanations, Kevin, to our listeners, as you can tell, this is a complex area as noted earlier. We at Novogratik have a wide range of resources, including professional services devoted to year 15. Kevin, is there anything else our listeners should know about year 15 we haven't already discussed? And I guess that's probably not the best word question because there's a lot more <laughs> about year 15 issues that clients need to know Our listeners need to know that we haven't discussed. But maybe is there anything else you want to mention on this
1: podcast? Right, right. I mean, yeah, like you mentioned, we could go on for hours on this topic. Right. But fortunately, I think I I need to mention that later this week, we will do that in Nashville uh, where we're going to have a pre-conference workshop on Wednesday, which is going to be essentially a four hour deep dive on year 15 issues. So more time is going to give us more opportunity to go into more depth. So also just like to let listeners know that they can reach out to me anytime via email and uh, my email address is my name, Kevin, K-E-V-I-N dot Wilson, W-I-L-S-O-N at com. Okay. Thank
0: you, Kevin. Please stick around for our off mic section at the end of the podcast. We'll ask you for some fun off topic tips and words of wisdom. For our listeners, be sure to tune into next week's podcast, where we're scheduled to talk about another issue of great importance to affordable housing stakeholders, and is one of the three key events data releases coming in the next six weeks or so. The topic for next week: fair market rents and income limits, and how they will be affected by the ACS data. My partner Thomas Dag will join me for a podcast where we'll talk about the income limits and more importantly, what those income limits mean to local building tax properties now and in the future. And we've previously discussed the data collection issues with the 2020 census and how those data collection issues could be impacting income limits. Next week, Thomas and I will discuss that as well as looking at what you as a party involved with low-costly tax credits, what you should be doing to get ready for the 2023 income in rent limit releases. Thomas is one of the nation's leading experts concerning income limits. At Novagradic. I would say among many of our clients, we think he is the leading expert. So you want to be sure to tune in. And as I also noted, in terms of pending releases we're also awaiting the average income test guidance to be released by the office of manager budget as well as the new markets test for allocation awards announcement so please stay tuned to future podcasts you can make sure that you're notified of that episode and each week's episode by following or subscribing to the task for tuesday podcast go to www.novico.com slash podcast to subscribe to and stream the show on our website You can also follow or subscribe to task for Tuesday on iTunes, Spotify, Google podcasts, Stitcher and radio power. Now I'm pleased to reach our off mic section where listeners can get some off topic advice and words of wisdom from our podcast guests. So Kevin, I thought as we're approaching the end of the pandemic, I guess Our president says the pandemic's over. There's various debates as to whether the pandemic is truly over or not. Certainly though, I like to, I hope and think the worst part certainly is over. What was the main professional lesson you learned or maybe not a professional, maybe a personal lesson or maybe they overlap in the way we had to live life during the COVID pandemic?
1: Well, right. And I like to think that the lessons that we learned there will continue to benefit us going forward, right? I think we all grew and adapted a lot professionally during that time, but I think one of the main lessons professionally that I learned, and there were many, but I think one of the main lessons is that the remote work worked, right? There was a lot of concern when we had to become essentially fully remote almost overnight, and it definitely takes effort, but it doesn't mean that the end of collaboration, far from it, by listening to our teams and our clients and adapting and iterating, I think we were actually able to increase productivity. And I think that some component of that is going to continue, right? And I think maintaining that flexibility will continue to create new opportunities. And I think it's also going to continue to provide a strong competitive advantage.
0: I definitely agree that we did learn that remote can work and did work during the worst part of the COVID pandemic. And as you find, most of our listeners know that we are committed to remote options at Novogravic. So our conference season starts this week. We noted earlier about our affordable housing tax credit and bonds conference in Nashville. Later this week, our listeners will be attending that conference. And others will be attending at least one of our other upcoming conferences, be it on renewable energy, be it on historic tax credits, be it on new market tax credits, uh, another one on affordable housing. So we have a number of upcoming conferences uh, for the balance of this year in early January. Uh, You've attended and participated on panels at many conferences. So could you share what advice you might give to our listeners To maximize the benefits of a conference.
1: Yeah. I have two kind of tidbits here that I'd like to go over. Yeah. Oftentimes when you go to a conference and you're with others on your team, it can be easy to get complacent and spend a lot of your time there with your coworkers. But it's really important to remember that one of the key benefits of these conferences, especially now that we're back to in-person events, is that they provide you with an opportunity to meet new people and to grow your network right? So I would encourage everyone to remember to take advantage of this networking opportunity. At a minimum, a simple trick that I've learned to help us kind of accomplish this is something I'm at a conference with others from my team is to make sure I don't sit next to them when I'm at the conference. Of course, I'll give them a heads up and I'll let them know that I'm not trying to avoid them or be rude. I'm just trying to maximize the benefits to being there in person while I'm there. The other takeaway is, like I mentioned, we are back to in-person events, but for instance, this week in Nashville starts in a couple of days and you may not have time at this point to get there. So remember that we do still have those, those virtual options, which can be a great resource and to help you get access to all of the information, which is in the agenda, which is packed with a relevant current information.
0: All right, Thank you for that, Kevin. And I really like your first one. I like both of your tips. They don't sit next to each other. I think is really an easy tip. Anyone can implement that. <laughs> All it takes is when you go in to sit down, make sure you're not sitting next to someone that you get to spend a lot of time with when you're not at conferences, and then you just can't help, but have some degree of networking and additional learning. Cause in addition to all the great material, much of the conference is being able to network. So I really appreciate that option. And I, I said that quite a bit at Novogratic when we're talking to the Novogratic professionals that are attending the various conferences, they're not sitting next to each other. And it does have an interesting twist though, when there's others within your company that are in different offices then in some ways our conference can be a way for you to network with others within your company which is another interesting twist on this another item i would actually add to the list, so maybe a third one and i know you do this as well is reach out to those who are attending in advance and if you're not sure of who is attending just go to our sponsors list and our sponsors list for these conferences will list the companies And then just reach out to who that company and ask them who from their company might be at our conference. Uh, And you can make a conference a lot more effective in terms of networking. If you're reaching out and scheduling time uh, to meet with other participants. And then we obviously have a speakers list. So you can also reach out to the speakers uh, and let them know that you'd like to meet with them at the conference. And that can help prime the puff, if you will, for networking at the conference. So thank you again, Kevin. I appreciate you joining us for this podcast today. There was a lot to discuss with respect to Y15, led to a little bit longer podcast than usual, but we covered a lot of great material and there's so much more. Hopefully many of the listeners will be there at the pre-conference workshop on Wednesday, even though they have to get there quick. And to our listeners, I'm Mike Novogratik. Thanks for listening.
1: This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratic & Company LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at
0: wwwnovacocom forward slash podcast, or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at wwwnovacocom forward slash podcast. Novagrattic and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novico.com.